0: In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 15 through 18.
1: Because I really would like to know how a woman did that all by herself. See, I always thought it took two. And the guy's not there. The woman is. But that's an incidental issue, I think. And, of course, the the law required her to be stoned. You all know the story. And so they're trying to trap him because, you know, he he has to obey the law of Moses, and yet this will make him unpopular, you know. And what does the Lord do? As they're moaning, he doesn't say a word. He writes in the dust on the ground. And as people look over his shoulder, he writes the sin, the secret sin of each. And they, of course... He says, i let the one that's without sin among you write the first stone. And then as they get ready to step up to, the, up to bat, he, he's writing in the dust. And they realize he knows what he's talking about. And they drop the stone and split. And by the time he's through writing in the dust, there's no one left. Woman, where are your accusers? Writing in the dust. So I've actually heard people preach the purpose of that psalm was to prove that he could read and write. Can you imagine that? I know I, 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 I In my early days in a denominational church that'll go nameless. I actually heard that, that well You don't have to take the story literally the main it was included primarily to show that he had a incredible incredible Lack of grasp as to who the guy was but how interesting it is that he's writing in the dust and in my Bible by John 8 I've made reference to Jeremiah 17 uh, 13 And it's interesting that Jesus, in Psalm 22, speaks of being brought down to the dust of death. It's being, your sin, the wages of sin is death, you're written in the dust. The dust is synonymous with death, the death the wages of sin. Why am I going through this? Because I think it's fast, every time I read Genesis 3, and I find that God declares war on Satan... In Genesis 3:15, I'll put enmity between thee and thy and the woman and thy seed and her seed, the famous prophecy that starts the messianic chain of references. He pronounces a curse on the creation, thorns and thistles out of the ground, right? On man, because he's gonna to have to it's gonna be by his sweat and toil that he's gonna provide for himself. What is the curse of the serpent? He's gonna eat dust, death, the wages of sin. Interesting how Consistently, idioms are used. There's going to be even a more dramatic one in chapter 18, so let's hasten on our way here. I don't want to take too much time for these things. I just want to... And I'm not making an issue of dust and so forth. To me, the thing that's relevant is to recognize the intricacy, the integrity of design. This book, these 66 books written by 40 authors over thousands of years, were designed. And they had their designer outside the time domain. And he integrated this message in advance, before it happened, so that we would recognize its source. And its source is not terrestrial. O Lord, the hope of Israel, verse 13, all who forsake thee shall be ashamed, and they who depart from me shall be written in the dust, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. They are written in the dust, because they have forsaken the fountain of living waters. See the contrast? Heal me, O Lord and I shall be healed. Save me, and I will be saved, for thou art my praise. Wow. Behold, they say unto me, Where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. As for me, I have not hastened from being a shepherd to follow thee, neither have I desired the woeful day. Thou knowest that which came out of my lips was right before thee. Be not a terror unto me. Thou art my hope in the day of evil. Let them be confounded that persecute me. Let, and, but let not me be confounded. Let them be dismayed, but let me not be dismayed. Bring upon them the day of evil and destroy them with double destruction. Again, that word Mishnah, with the double, the, the complete, the proportion, uh, not, not, not shortchanged. Don't shortchange their destruction. Okay. Notice that these pronouncements of doom are always ethically conditioned. Ethically conditioned. Verse 19. Thus saith the Lord unto me Go and stand in the gate of the children of people, uh, the children of the people, by which the kings of Judah come in, and by which they go out, and in all the gates of Jerusalem, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord, ye kings of Judah. And all Judah and all inhabitants of Jerusalem who enter in by these gates, thus saith the Lord, Take heed to yourselves and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it by the gates of Jerusalem. Neither carry forth a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, neither do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. This may strike you strange because it wasn't but a few chapters ago Jeremiah is climbing on their case because they're obeying the the literal law, but without their heart, right? You say, gee, it sounds like it's contradictory. No, he's just reminding them of the Sabbath day for some very specific Jewish reasons. The Sabbath was a sign twofold. It was in the Decalogue. It's emphasized in the Ten Commandments. And it, uh, it, the Sabbath day emphasizes two relationships with God. One, the Creator. The Sabbath day commemorates the seventh day in which God rested. It speaks of his being the source of all creation, it also speaks because of its placement in the Decalogue and so forth as the sign of the covenant. The sign of the covenant between israel and 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 the Creator was that they too would observe the seventh day as a day of rest, just as the Creator rested on the seventh day. That idea is engraved in genesis and and engraved on the stone in Je- in Exodus twenty the Ten Commandments. so Jeremiah here is pointing to that which is in effect a um a metonym, that is, it's it's the general for the specific. He's saying, he's calling them to an acknowledgement of their Creator and their covenant relationship. He says, uh, you know, uh, uh, bear no burden on the Sabbath day and bring it by the gates of Jerusalem, neither carry forth a burden out of your house on the Sabbath day, neither do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your fathers. But they obeyed not, neither inclined their ear, but made their neck stiff, that they might not hear nor receive instruction. And it shall come to pass, if ye diligently hearken unto me, saith the Lord, to bring in no burden through the gates of the city on the Sabbath day, but hallow the Sabbath day, to do no work in it. Then shall there enter into the gates of the city kings and princes sitting on the throne of David, riding in chariots and in horses, they and their princes and the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the city shall remain forever. And they shall come from the cities of Judah and from the uh, places about Jerusalem, and from the land of Benjamin, from Arabah, and from the mountains, and from the Negev, bringing burnt offerings and sacrifices, and meal offerings and incense, bringing sacrifices of praise into the house of the Lord. When will that happen? In the millennium. But ye shall not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day, and not to hear the burden, that bear a burden even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in its gates, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. So in chapter 17. Okay, chapter 18. This is a fun one. This is a very special one. It's going to be very familiar to you for some very strange reasons. Let's just jump in and see what we've got here. Jeremiah 18, verse 1. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying... Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. Jeremiah is going to get a very private special object lesson. He's going to go down the valley. It probably was the valley of Hinnom, because there was both clay and water down there, and the potters were typically down there at the base of that. But he's going to go down, he says, Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheels." You all know how a potter works with the wheels. In those days, they had a double wheel, and they just spun the bottom one with their feet. They didn't have motor drives, I don't think. Verse four, um, and the vessel that he made of the clay, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. So he made it again, another vessel, as seemed good to the potter to make it. Potter and clay. Hmm? Can you visualize that? It's really too big, you know. You and I see for Jeremiah, this was an everyday occurrence. It's as common as you and I might go down and watch a carpenter sawing some wood or a machinist doing working on a lathe. This was a common artisan's craft. In fact, First Chronicles four says that potters would work for kings. See, if you were a king, pottery was a big deal, and so you had a potter do special things for you. Pottery has become very, very important to us archaeologically because we can date things often very skillfully by understanding the styling of the pottery because they had durability in that sense. It's, in fact, durability that spans centuries. Now, so Jeremiah is watching this very common thing but with a different insight. God is saying, go down there. I want to talk to you about this. So he watches the potter. And he wr- wrote a work on wheels, and now something goes wrong. The clay doesn't come out the way the potter wants. What does he do? Puts it all back together and builds something else, right? And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, verse 5, verse 6, O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter? Oh. What's the lesson? The sovereignty of God. Who is the potter? The Lord is. You are the clay. You It's sort of a variation of the old gag, where does the gorilla sleep in the forest? Answer, anywhere he wants to. Right. God is in charge. He's the potter. He can make with the clay what he wills. O house of Israel, cannot I, cannot I do with you as this potter? Saith the Lord, Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in my hand, O house of Israel. At what instant... I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up or to pull down or destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. And at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it. If it do evil in my sight that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good which I have said I would benefit them. Now, therefore, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you, and devise a plan against you. Return every one from his evil way, and make your ways, and your doings good. And he said, is there, no, there, is, there is no hope, but we will walk after our own plans, and we will, every one, do the imagination of his evil heart. Whoa. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, verse 13 Ask now among the nations who hath heard these things, the Virgin of Israel has done very a very horrible thing. Now, we're going to go on and read some more, but before I I don't want to go too far into this, without I'll talk a little bit more about the potter. One small point this concept of the Lord repenting is a misused word. The Lord doesn't change his mind, he changes that which he was going to do, depending on you changing yours. The Lord can't learn, he knows all things. And so when it says the Lord will repent of what he was doing, that's a figure of speech. What he really means is, is if you're obedient, he'll do that which is good. If you're disobedient, he'll do that which is appropriate for your disobedience. But he doesn't change his mind. He's responding to you changing yours. Now, the idiom is, well, he'll repent of the evil that he was planning to do. And I didn't repent of it. He just is able then to set it aside and go plan A rather than plan B, so to speak. Now, it's very fascinating here because he says, hey, if you guys do good, I'll do good. If you don't, I won't. And he says, well, because there's no hope, we're going to do bad. I don't know how they came to that conclusion in Judah, but that's what, you know, it is. Uh, This idea of the potter, though, I'd like to talk a little bit more about that because here again, uh, and uh, we, we want to get further into Jeremiah and some other things, but before we leave this potter's idea, that may be very familiar to you. And the reason is it occurs so often in the Scripture. It occurs in Job ten and Job thirty three, you know, same idea, potter clay idea. But I want to pick out a couple of spec and we could also look at Isaiah twenty nine sixteen, Isaiah forty five, nine, Isaiah sixty four, eight. Isaiah at least three places uses this idiom. Um in fact several other places, but I'll confine myself to those for the moment. But there's another way that this, you know, this idiom is consistently used. Hold your place here because we eventually return to Jeremiah, believe it or not. But I'd like you to take it to Psalm two, okay? And Psalm two is a fascinating psalm. I love New Testament Christians, particularly, to be confronted with Psalm two. They have a tough time unless they really understand that it's a dialogue between the three members of the holy uh, of the of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the main thing is the Father saying to the Son in verse nine, or let's take it verse eight, Ask of me and I shall give thee the nations for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. By the way, Satan offered that to Christ, and he was able to deliver. God he says, It's all given to me, and I can give it to whomsoever I will. Worship me and it's yours. Satan's saying to Christ, Don't go the way of the cross, I'll give you a shortcut. Christ would have no part of it. The fathers promised that he will give them all the nations and their inheritance for the utmost parts of the earth for thy possession. But notice verse nine: Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a what? A potter's vessel. I see. Just just because they're made by the potter doesn't mean they're to honor. They can also be made to dishonor. Whatever pleases the Lord. Some vessels are made to honor. Some to dishonor. Now, by the way, the reason I point this out to you: This is used as an identity phrase in Revelation chapter two. In the seven letters of seven churches, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, it's, it speaks of Jesus Christ at the end of the, le- of the letter to Thyatira, it says, And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and as the vessels of a potter, they shall be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. That's what Jesus says. So there again, he's identified as the one that's dashing, ruling with a rod of iron, and dashing these vessels to pieces. Strange idiom, isn't it? This same idiom is used by Paul in Romans 9. In Romans 9, if you take a look at Romans 9, a couple, just grab a couple of verses there, um, Romans chapter 9, Paul is wrestling with his whole business of the sovereignty of God, and he says in verse 20, Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter the power over the clay? and of the same lump, to make one vessel unto honor, and another unto dishonor. God is sovereign. Now, that's only part of the story. That's only part of the story. A couple of first observations. The clay is in his hand and in his control. You realize that? That's it. In all the idioms here, the clay is in his hand and in his control on the one hand. Where are the defects? In the potter or in the clay? I want you to notice, though, the potter's perseverance he doesn't give up. He does have something going for him there. Now, I'm going to suggest to you, if we really analyze this, that there are three issues here, and they all start with P. The first is the, is the principle, the sovereignty of God. He has, the po- he has unlimited power over the clay. So the first point is the sovereignty of God. Now, that's not the only story, uh, part of the story, or if it'd be very, very simple. The other part of the story is also imputed to us freedom. He's given that there's a whole message we should develop called the sovereignty of man. He will yield to us, to our choice. And if we insist upon destroying ourselves, he will allow us to do that. If we insist upon not being repentant, being disobedient, being rebellious, he will give us our desire. It is the fruits of that. Now, if it was just the principle of the sovereignty of God, that's terrifying. There's a second issue. Purpose. The potter has an intended purpose for the clay. He has an intended purpose for you and I. He has a goal. We may frustrate that goal, so he may choose to remake us into a vessel of dishonor. But his, he has a purpose, okay? Okay. He is doing something with us, and he's doing it on purpose, not randomly. You as clay in his hand have an intended purpose, and he will seek his purpose in you if you you give him a chance. And the final issue, I said there's three Ps, the principle, the purpose, and the final final thing is the purpose, is the person. Who is the potter we're talking about? And as you get to know him, you can get increasing confidence that he knows what he's doing and that he has provided a path of honor, if we will uh, but yield to it. One last thing I can't leave the potter without mentioning one other thing since we've just finished the study of the book of Matthew. I have to call your attention to Matthew 27, verses 7 to 8, where a potter's field is purchased with the price of blood. The potter's field. Is purchased with the price of blood. In Matthew 13, we saw the kingdom parables, where the field is the world, and the, and the and the and the person bought it because he bought the field for the sake of the treasure. Sold everything he had to buy the field, so that he could claim the treasure that was in it. The blood of Jesus Christ, the blood money, purchases the potter's field, the world, and uh, so we have, if you will. Um, Uh, An interesting closure on the whole model of the potter and the clay. Now, the clay, we could divert some other places. Isaiah 30, 14 mentions the clay. But the clay that you might also keep in mind is the clay uh, 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 that's mixed with iron as the feet of Daniel's image or Nebuchadnezzar's image uh, that Daniel unravels for him. In Daniel chapter 2, where the entire nations of the world are modeled in... In gold, silver, brass, iron, and iron mixed with clay. Huh? And the uh, gold is Nebuchadnezzar, the, the arms and, uh, you know, the the, um, the belly, the chest and arms are, are of silver, right? And the belly and thighs of brass, and the legs, iron, you know, the, the, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the iron uh, of Rome. But then the 10-nation confederacy at the end, the iron mixed with clay, and it's not as strong as the previous ones because they don't adhere. Why don't they adhere? Because there are 10 nations that are made up of peoples who do not adhere. Language, cultural differences, and so forth. There's still a 10-nation confederacy. It becomes very, very powerful. But it becomes really powerful when it yields its allegiance to a leader yet to be surfaced, probably alive today. whole other issue Daniel 2, Daniel 7, you can get the tapes and dig into that. One small thing we saw here in verses uh, 11 and 12 we have the word preparing, devising. One thing that you don't recognize in the English is the the verb the, the Hebrew word Yasser in the verb form means preparing, but as a noun, the word means potter. And so it's a pun. There's a play on words that Jeremiah is, uh, or the Holy Spirit's dealing with Jeremiah there for what small value that might be. Okay, we got down here, I guess, to about verse 13. Let's pick up verse 14. Will a man leave the snow of Lebanon, which cometh from the rock of the field? Strange phrase. What you need to know is the word rock there on the slopes. The word is Sirion, which is a pun. A Phoenicia. It's also a Phoenician name for Mount Hermon, which is about 9,100 feet high and has typically snow on it most of the year. And uh, it's, uh, you can compare Deuteronomy 3, nine and Psalm 29.6 for some other examples of that new word. Again, it's a translational issue. Verse 15, because my people have forgotten me, they have burned incense to vanity, and they have caused them to stumble in their ways from the ancient paths, to walk in the paths in a way not cast up, to make their land desolate, and a perpetual hissing everyone that passeth by it shall be appalled and wag his head and by the way until may 14th of 1948 that's exactly for 1900 years how the world looked at palestine marshes mosquitoes desolation when you visit israel today you can't believe the change verse 17 i will scatter them as with an east wind before the enemy I will I will uh show them the back and not the face in the day of their calamity. Boy, isn't that graphic? Isn't that graphic? Then and uh, then said they, Come and let us devise plots against Jeremiah, for the law shall not perish from the priest, nor counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. Come and let us smite him with the tongue, and let us not give heed to any of his words. Give heed to me, O Lord, and hearken to the voice of those who contend with me. Shall evil be recompensed for good? For they have digged a pit for my soul. Remember that I stood before thee to speak good for them, and to turn away thy wrath from them. Therefore deliver up their children to the famine, and pour out their blood by the force of the sword, and let their wives be bereaved of their children and be widows, and let their men be put to death, let their young men be slain by the sword in battle." Let a cry be heard from their houses when thou shalt bring a troop suddenly upon them, for they have digged a pit to take me and hidden snares for my feet. Yet, Lord, thou knowest all their counsel against me to slay me. Forgive not their iniquity, neither blot out their sin from thy sight, but let them be overthrown before thee. Deal thus with them in the time of thine anger. Strange words out of Jeremiah, isn't it? Love the people. But he is collinear with God in terms of his judgment on the leadership. So it may sound like he's invecting, in, invoking a personal invective. Not so. He's just, in effect, saying, let it be done. What, that which you said, Lord, let it be done. You said it's going to happen. Not, uh, they not only don't repent, they're plotting against me. Give them their due, Lord. I give up, so to speak. He doesn't give up on the nation, really. He just gives it the leadership, though. He's, he's, he's about... In effect, acknowledge what the Lord does, wants them to do. So next time, we'll pick up verse uh, chapter 19 and keep moving on. Yes, I think next time we'll also get into the blood curse of Jeconiah in a couple of chapters. So if we pick up two three chapters next time, we're going to get into what's probably one of the most interesting chapters in the entire Bible for in terms of its uh, implications on the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And in all of that. So let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Very personal, very personal um, bit tonight. Potter and the clay. You and I are the clay. He is the potter. He has a purpose in molding you and I. Whether or not that purpose is accomplished, he has designed it so that it involves our participation. We need to yield to him. If we choose not to, then he'll make something else of us. But um, he, he has chosen to give you sovereignty also, and your choice is whether you yield or fight it. But he is the potter. He is the one that's in control. He has a, he's a designer. He has a purpose in it, and his purposes are for us to have fellowship with him. If we refuse, then he will give us our wishes and deny us fellowship with him
0: eternally. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry.